Welcome to the AIER Standard, a production of the American Institute for Economic Research. I'm Ethan Yang. In a sweet stroke of irony, or perhaps even blasphemy, we are recording today's episode at AIER's Great Barrington headquarters on the eve of our graduate colloquium on Austrian economics, perhaps one of the most pure free market schools of thought. Our topic for, day, for today is no other than the works of, of German philosopher Karl Marx. In the middle of the 19th century, Marx and his colleague Engels penned a number of immortal writings such as the Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital. These works calling for the, call for the abolition of capitalism and the creation of a classist society would go on to change the world as they still do today. Joining us today is AIER senior fellow, Phil Magnus, and he's the editor of The Best of Karl Marx, uh, which is available for sale on AIER's website as well as Amazon. I'm sure we can see the irony in that as well. So the, the work itself is a collection of uh, Karl Marx's actual writings, some, some of the, and it's uh, personally edited uh, by Phil, and it's a, essentially trying to present uh, some of his strongest arguments in a coherent fashion. Uh, so for those that are interested in learning more about Marxism and communism, socialism, can actually read the real thing instead of maybe, uh, you know, like a take an, a takedown by an Austrian economist or perhaps an over-glorified over version by a Marxist uh, AIER would like to present a sort of edited and quick version of some of Marx's best works. Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I guess before we get started, why did you feel compelled to create this book? Well, I think there's a necessity to engage Marx at his own face value. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've done in research is looked at the way that Marxism is used in the university setting. And I found, uh, using a database of online syllabi, that Marx is the single most frequently assigned author in U.S. university courses outside of a few like grammar manuals and ta uh, mm -hmm. math textbooks. So he's a, um, a, a recurring presence in the classroom. But at the same time, the way that he's taught and the way that he's presented uh, is often very superficial. So students get a version of Marx that's often through the lens of a humanities class or some of the social sciences. So he's really popular, uh, not in economics, but in the English classroom, mm -hmm. in the history classroom, philosophy classroom, stuff like that. Uh, but the version of him that they get is often treated as a historical document that supposedly tapped into the zeitgeist of the mid-19th century and diagnosed major flaws of capitalism, and you get a, a very glossed-over version of his economic system that results from that. Mm. And we'll get into his influence in the humanities and philosophies later, uh, but to start off, in Marx's own words, what is socialism? What is <laughs> communism? Yeah, yeah, so this is a, a very long, drawn-out uh, play into terminology. Uh, the basic way to think of Marx is he's a, a stage theorist of history. He views historical progression as something that can be scientifically discerned uh, from the evolutions of humanity from one stage to the next. And the basic driving mechanism of this is a realization that the working class is more numerous mm -hmm. uh, than the, uh, the owners of capital, than the ruling class, or in earlier days, that's uh, the, the feudal lords, mm -hmm. effectively. Uh, and that numerical advantage is going to lead Marx into thinking that you can discern certain patterns of how uh, society evolves in different stages. And it also allows him to, at least in his mind, predict where he thinks things are going. And uh, his assessment right now is, you know, we're in a capitalist stage, but he sees this as a, uh, a way station to the next thing. And uh, part of the next thing is uh, entering into a, a stage of state socialism. Uh, this is supposedly precipitated by a proletarian revolution of some sort mm -hmm. uh, that establishes, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the later writings of Marx and Engels in particular. They call it a, a dictatorship of the proletariat. Mm -hmm. Uh, through state mechanisms, after which, and especially in Engels' interpretation, he says the state will wither away and you transfer into a pure communist society. Mm. And before we get into uh, that point about the state and whether or not it actually will wither away, whether or not they got that those incentives correctly, uh, why are there just so many different types of socialism, I guess the correct word, you know, you have communism, which yeah. I've... You know, that's more like it's the dictatorship that then transitions to an anarchist, almost like non-state, non-class society. Yeah. Uh, there's Leninism, which is more like this pragmatic version, which is like the vanguard party, the single party state guides society to 
uh, utopia, essentially, and there's democratic socialism. Um, I'm sure, like, we've heard many different, <laughs> yeah, there's just so many different types of quote-unquote yeah. socialism. Uh, but well, I guess what is that its most base form? <laughs> That's a fun thing, a fun question to ask is which group do you uh, you go to? So the problem with uh, socialist movements, and this actually predates Marx, is they're notoriously schismatic. Mm. Uh, they can agree on 99.9% of everything, but that tiny 0.1% uh, has them at each other's throats, has them <laughs> in some cases historically literally killing each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the uh, the difference of small details. Mm-hmm. So the Trotskyists and the Stalinists. Exactly. And uh, they become schismatic uh, factions within the schismatic factions. A lot of it comes about in the aftermath of Marx himself as a major theorist of socialism. Uh, his followers do what uh, religious and philosophical followers uh, throughout history have done as they claim to be the true interpreter mm-hmm. and they come into conflict with another competing interpreter. Mm-hmm. And after Engels is dead in particular, there's no one left to be the authoritative uh, designator of who was right, who was wrong. Uh, and on top of that, uh, some more of the schisms start to emerge when attempts to implement the Marxian system in the late 19th and early 20th century uh, collide into like a brick wall of reality. Mm. Uh, The execution ends up being very imperfect, or they find that when they go to seek out a proletarian revolution, there's no revolutionaries ready to rise up (laughs) in the way that they wanted Mm -hmm. or expected. And they're they're kind of left scratching their heads thinking, well, huh, something must be wrong. Uh, But then the the realization is, well, well, Marx can't be wrong because he scientifically discerned this. Mm -hmm. Uh, We must be interpreting him uh, differently than what he meant. So they go seek out a new interpretation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And eventually what it devolves into is uh, the person that has the most force uh, usually wins out in these struggles. Mm. And so let's get into the, you mentioned historical stages. And I believe one of the influences on Marx was Hegel, uh, who spoke (laughs) about, you know, historical cycles. Um, when we say historical cycles, when we use the word dialectics and materialism, these are you know, yeah. massive words. I don't even know if like, the people who use them know what they mean. But yeah. So what exactly do we mean by historical cycles? Well, Hegel is fundamentally a conflict theorist of history. He views uh, the mechanism of history is a contestation between uh, two or more parties, effectively, uh, two or more discernible groups. Uh, the Marxian version of this looks at material possessions as economic resources as the mechanism and source of the conflict. Mm -hmm. It's who gets what, who owns what. The struggle over ownership, effectively. And if you have a a ruling class that owns the means of production, that owns uh, all the resources of capital, or owns the the feudal farm as the lord of the manor, uh, that's one form of ownership that's in tension with the workers who are actually working the farm or working the factory. Uh, and that conflict seems to be, at least in Marx's version, uh, the mechanism of what leads to a, uh, a perpetual struggle over control of the resources. Mm. Uh, so it, it, he's basically saying as long as there are material possessions and material possessions are scarce and there are the haves and have-nots, people that have claimed ownership over it and asserted it, and people that are denied ownership over those possessions, there's going to be conflict, and that mechanism of conflict is what's going to drive the stage evolution across history. Hmm. And there's actually plenty of factual truth to that in the sense that, you know, when one group is wrong, they tend to want to right that wrong, they probably rise up or something like that. Um, so there's certainly... Um, some level, some level of truth we can actually take from that. It's whether or not the logical conclusion is stateless and like right. non-capitalist <laughs> utopia. Um, and I guess if you look at look at it from a more, I don't know what the correct word is, but I know conservatives and especially Machiavelli would just say like, you know, history just starts from zero every single generation. It's like, it's not, there's no actual logical endpoint. Um, of course, these incentives and these and these back and forths matter. But at the end of the day, it's like it can go either way, depending on who's got the better, like who's got the better more force, who's got the better organization, yeah. what have you. And I guess that would be the difference between um, a Marxian, more historical view of society and a more, you know, like, I guess, I guess Reagan was really a, the really simplifies what I just try to say when, when he says, like, freedom is not born in the bloodstream, it must be fought for by every generation. So it's more, it's a view more, a view of society that says it can go either way. It just depends on, you know, who's more organized, who's got more, more guns on their side, what, whatever. Um, but on, on that note of just like, cause I remember, um, Deirdre McCloskey in her book said that Marx was actually a brilliant historian. He was just wrong. 
right? So I'd like to talk about some of the stuff that, you know, we can probably look at and say, that sounds pretty good to me, right? Um, so when he talks about kind of like, um, like the way that society has moved throughout history, he, ta- he uses the word bourgeoisie a lot, yeah. he uses working <laughs> class a lot. Um, so what, what sort of observations is he trying to make there? Because I do think there's some sort of historical fact that's backing that up. Yeah, at least... He's trying to sort humanity into categories, classifications, effectively there, uh, that are premised around, uh, I guess we could say broadly, social group identity, but it becomes effectively in the Marxist system a class identity, Mm -hmm. Uh, class consciousness uh, that you belong to a certain group, a certain strata of society, and therefore your interests are determined uh, by where that group in society fits. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's often a materialist determination that's being made there. Uh, you know, why you end up in a certain class uh, historically, and this is where Marx does have some interesting observations, you know, historically in the medieval times, you're looking at feudal lords, it's, it's inherited. So mm-hmm. where you happen to be born in society, uh, there are other mechanisms that intrude and intervene upon that. And this is one of the interesting insights that I think McCloskey really taps into is something does change between the feudal stage, the medieval stage of uh, lords of the manor and castles and uh, serfs working the the farm around it Mm -hmm. to a merchant society of trade, of commerce, of people moving to the cities, of uh, different forms of capital organization away from an agrarian system to uh, uh, industrial production. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Marx is seeing these events unfold. Uh, I think the other thing that is interesting from a historical perspective is he does see uh, inequity emerging in, say, like the factory system of mid-19th century London. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not the prettiest place to work or live. It's not the best condition. Uh, And and I I think he does tap into what we could say are legitimate grievances with principles of fairness, with principles of, uh, of how a workplace is operated. Mm-hmm. Uh, now the question is: Are those locked in as a uh, uh, just a, a, a natural progression of the stage? Is this what happens when uh, the owners of capital uh, basically exert control over productive processes, uh, or is this a uh, uh, more of an evolution towards a, a certain type of a workplace? So, I guess another way of putting it: the the factory of today looks almost nothing like the factory of 1851 mm-hmm. for a reason. Mm-hmm. Conditions yeah. are a lot better. Safety is a lot better. Uh, workers are paid more. Mm-hmm. Uh, Technological advancement. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in ways that are probably not anticipated all that well in the Marxist system, mm. uh, because he does see um, this separation between the owners of capital and the workers as basically capitalism's ultimate undoing. He says it's going to continually exacerbate tensions between the two groups. And he has some very complex mechanisms of how he says this is going to play out. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, he says that capitalism is basically uh, uh, unintentionally committing suicide. Mm-hmm. And those are sort of like the contradictions that, I mean, contradictions are a vocab term in Marxist language when it's basically looking at the conditions of today and just observing how it's going to eventually lead to the downfall of the system in the future. As you said, if, if the conditions are so unsustainable as they were uh, during the 19th century, then of course one would maybe speculate that yeah. workers would rise up and they get really irritated. Um, so I guess on that note, would you say that Marxist writings are just fundamentally a, a product of his time? Or like- Very much so. I mean, he, he's an observer of the world around him. Uh, he, he sees events that are unfolding. He's, uh, he spends part of his life as a newspaper correspondent. So, uh, he's watching current events as well. Uh, and he's trying to process this data as it comes in. Mm-hmm. And so when he, when he talks about, um, the bourgeoisie, cause I know that's, that's a term that's tossed around. So what, what exactly is the bourgeoisie? Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's another term that there's many competing interpretations, um, I tend to go in the McCloskeyan direction of that, and I think she has, uh, I mean, she draws on Marx when she's, she's basically borrowing the terminology, although it comes from a little bit earlier in the uh, socialist literature and discussion. Uh, but it, it's a notion of a, um, a class of society uh, that isn't quite the aristocracy. It isn't the inherited sons of dukes and princes and kings, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's not the, uh, the old feudal lords. Uh, but it is an, an ownership class. It is a, uh, a ruling class of sorts 
that emerged in the capitalist stage, uh, more out of uh, mercantile exchange, out of industrial production. It's uh, people that have a, a status of society because they own the factories. Mm. Uh, they own the land that is being uh, farmed and curated. They own uh, capital items of production effectively. Mm-hmm. So like a Jeff Bezos or like a – Effectively, of Apple kind of guy. Yeah, and and even below that absolute uh, ultra rich classification of them, uh, uh, upper management or upper stakeholders mm. in a company. Mm. Uh, and so, would he say? Does he focus on the bourgeoisie? I guess because the aristocracy itself is obviously we can all see what it's bad. And clearly, uh, by his time, as capitalism starts to take off around the world, the aristocracy is kind of. Um, kind of phased out, and the new ruling, quote unquote, ruling class are these, you know, mer- merchants of industry. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like the Rockefellers, you know, self-made men, um, or maybe they're uh, had money in the family. But at the end of the day, right, their their status in the family or their status in the in the in the world comes not from a title that's passed down through blood, but right. more so from the fact that they own a lot of stuff, employ a lot of people, make a lot of money. Exactly, they're reaping the profits of uh, whatever their industry that they happen to be in. And this gets to the kind of the core of Marxian economics. Uh, you know, Marx is a labor theory of value thinker. Mm-hmm. He comes out of that tradition. He's not the only one. He's, a, he's a, one of the later labor theory of value thinkers. Mm-hmm. But it's really a premise of his system is that value is an imparted onto a good through the productive process, through the labor performed to improve it. Mm. So that's the gist of it. And he's looking out and he, he sees factories and he says, well, yeah, clearly workers in the factories – when they're running the sewing machines or they're assembling furniture or whatever it happens to be, they are improving raw materials. And what comes out of the other end of the factory is a good that's put for sale mm-hmm. at a much higher price than, say, like a pile of wood or a bale of cotton that arrived uh, as a raw material input. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's saying, yeah, that the labor performed is what uh, basically uh, imparts the value into that good. But then he asks the question, he says, well, workers – are getting paid at a much lower rate than these goods are being sold for effectively. Mm-hmm. And he asked the question, well, where's the rest of that money going to? Well, it's the owner of the factory that's reaping the main reward in mm-hmm. the Marxian system. He says basically the difference between the two of what the owner takes in and what the worker performs and gets in return for, for uh, in wages effectively, he calls that the surplus value of the good. Mm-hmm. And it's that surplus value, the difference between what the owner sells at and what the worker makes in wage, that is the material mechanism of his entire system of conflict in an economic sense. Mm. And so I guess to digress a little bit off Marx and into the Austrian school, the Marginal Revolution, um, which a different topic of your research, but your research nonetheless it shows that it really knocks off a labor theory of value replaces what we have today, which is more of this microeconomic subjective value free exchange style. Yeah. Um, so what would be the Austrian critique of the labor theory of value? Well, fundamentally, it's wrong. It doesn't account for situations that we see in regular everyday life in economics. And really, the early Austrians that engaged Marx, and this is Wigan uh, von Bombeiwerk is the main writer in the uh, uh, late 19th century that basically attacks Marx and other socialist systems, basically attacks the theory of surplus value. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he does is he points out drawing on a literature and economics that asks the question, what does instill value into a good if not the labor performed? Well, by the mid-19th century, even before Marx's writing, there are there start to um, – uh, the note, uh, there are noticed cracks in the theory of value that comes from labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the classical examples, so David Ricardo writes on this in a couple of letters. Uh, he says, well, if labor performed is what instills something in value, uh, let's take the, the uh, scenario of making wine. Uh, wine production is basically the same no matter what part of the world you do it in. Uh, you smash up grapes and you ferment them and you put them in bottles. That's the labor that's performed. Mm-hmm. Uh Yet, Ricardo says, wait a minute, uh, wine from the Bordeaux region of France is very, very expensive. Wine grown on a random farm in Scotland, if you could even do that, (laughs) uh, probably tastes terrible, Mm -hmm. even though it's the same type of labor performed, and it's swill, it's cheap. Mm -hmm. And Ricardo says, wait a minute, this labor theory of value doesn't explain differences in why wine that is produced 
essentially the same way, uh, sells at very different rates and prices. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of a head scratcher to them. Subsequent economists uh, see other scenarios where this doesn't work or perform uh, as the labor theory of value would have suggested. The classic one is the the uh, diamond water paradox. Mm-hmm. Uh, the notion being that if you're in the desert and you have a bag of diamonds, it may have been a very intensive process to dig it out of the ground. They may be extremely rare, mm-hmm. uh, but they're basically useless to you. Whereas water, which is common in most parts of the earth, you can get it by digging a hole in the ground, except for in the desert, mm-hmm. uh, becomes extremely scarce in, in that situation. Uh, so, so asking the question, a labor theory of value does not explain why an exchange would occur in the desert where someone would give up a whole bunch of diamonds for water. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one, one way of framing it. Uh, another would be uh, you know, the labor performed uh, to extract one rare item versus the labor performed to extract a, a very common item, water. Uh, there's quite a disparity there. Mm-hmm. And in normal circumstances, diamonds go for a lot of money. Mm-hmm. In the desert, they're useless, whereas water could be the difference between whether you make it through the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they come up with uh, theoretical explanations of why this theory of value is not working out. Uh, multiple real-world examples that show it's not working. And the answer comes to, uh, well, basically, individuals have deeply subjective preferences, and those preferences differ between you, me, and anyone, anyone else. Um you know, the classic example is, this, is I may be willing to pay more for a red car than you do if you don't like the cars, mm-hmm. but you may be willing to pay more for a yellow car than I would if I don't like yellow cars. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that one of them had more work performed on it or anything. It doesn't mean that one's superior to the other. It means we have different tastes and preferences. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, we make economic decisions on the margin, meaning at the moment of sale, the moment of exchange, the moment of trade. If you have 10 red cars and you like red cars, uh, you know, you may ask a question, do I need an 11th one? Mm-hmm. And will I be willing to pay the same price for the 11th car that I would the previous one and the one before that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so our decisions are not fixed across a price level. They occur in the moment with respect to the conditions. So back to the desert, if you're in the desert, your canteen is empty, you're out of water, Someone comes riding along uh, on a camel and they have uh, an extra canteen of water and all you have is a bag of diamonds. Mm-hmm. Your decision in the moment is you probably hand him the bag of diamonds to uh, get that canteen of water. Mm. Otherwise you die. So the, the Marxist framing of, you can, of value would be like, they're basically trying to say that there's an objective universal value all the time. Whereas- well, an, an instilled value from labor. Mm. And it creates a real problem and this is one of Bohm Weiberg and some of the other critics uh, dig into this. They go at uh, the Marxist system in two ways. One, they say basically the labor theory of value is wrong. Uh, labor can be performed to improve something that nobody wants. Mm-hmm. Like, like FDR paying a bunch of people to dig holes. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's labor that's performed, but no, if no one wants the outcome, mm-hmm. uh, are you really creating value? Uh and then we have a, a better theory of value in marginalism. The, the, the second thing they notice in the Marxian system, there is a problem created by asserting that labor itself uh, has a value price associated with it. Hmm. Another wages. Uh, when you pay a laborer wages, well, well, where do you set the wage? How is that determined? What comes from comes about is an input for market exchange. And what this creates is a mathematical conundrum in the Marxian planning system. Uh, refer to it as the transformation problem. What it basically means is if you are trying to calculate uh, inputs and outputs, uh, you are trying to calculate what is owed to the laborer, and labor itself is an input, you need to simultaneously price labor as an input as you are doing the calculation of what is owed to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you can't solve that equation simultaneously, uh, you're, you're kind of up a creek mathematically. Uh, so several Marxists, uh, earlier interpreters of Marx realize this, as do the critics. And what happens is the, the early Austrian critics of Marx say he fails internally because what he does in his, his writings, this comes about in the, uh, the second and third volumes of Das Kapital, uh, what he does in his writings is he, he kind of uses a rhetorical sleight of hand uh, to get around this so-called transformation problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, brushes it aside by relabeling things rather than actually 
of coming up with a solution of how you price labor input simultaneously. Hmm. So all this kind of collides together. That the, the gist of it is, is by the turn of the 20th century, Marx is seen as thoroughly obsolete in economic circles. Hmm. So let's get into more of, um, I guess, his ideas in practice. So you've yep. seen it pop up in all these different countries, like the Soviet Union, you have China, you have Venezuela, you have Cuba. Why does it happen? Why do you think, and also there's the Paris Commune. So what does he have to say? About, I, I know he wasn't alive for like Cuba, Soviet Union, but he was, I think, I think he yeah. did write about the Paris Commune. Though. He did. Uh, so Marx is an interesting observer of unfolding events. Every time there's a revolution of some sort, playing out in Europe in particular at that time, but he's also watching things in, around the world. He's watching like the U.S. Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, every time he sees something that could have hints of a revolutionary event, he jumps in as, aha, there's proof of my theory playing out mm -hmm. and tries to rally behind it. This is the impetus for writing the Communist Manifesto was the 1848 revolutions in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, and he ends up being late to the game on that. They, mm -hmm. they can't get it out in production at the time, uh, although he's claiming, that, well, I was right, but then it was quashed by, uh, by state power and, uh, and the owners of capital. Uh, Paris Commune in 1871 comes out of political turmoil in the aftermath of the Franco-Prussian War, mm -hmm. uh, which basically overturns the French government. Marx jumps in and sees this event unfolding across the channel in England or from England uh, in Paris. And he basically tries to give a Marxian interpretation as it plays out. And uh, this is where he gets into some really tricky territory because the Paris Commune fails. Mm. It's the army is sent in to quash it. And the army basically opens fire on the communards and, mm. and uh, they are much more powerful. And it's a, it's a show of force. Uh, and, and Marx really is kind of scratching his head. Well, the, and he comes up with the answers. Well, the reason why it failed is uh, uh, you didn't really have... Uh, the mechanisms of this proletarian state. Uh, it was unwilling to take the step that was necessary to preserve itself, mm -hmm. essentially, uh, where it gets down to in the argument. Uh, so what Marx is seeing over and over again in his lifespan is uh, attempt at uh, an event that could be interpreted as revolutionary. Uh, he seizes onto it and is like, aha, this is the moment. Then when it fails, he comes up with an excuse for why it fails. Hmm. And also that point about it did not take the right steps to preserve itself. That's kind of like the whole crux of the issue, though. And that's yes, why, yes. <laughs> um, especially when it comes to because a, a lot of communists will tell me personally, like they'll be they'll be like, OK, like, of course, the authoritarian government is terrible. But what we're looking for is, you know, this classless utopia without the state. You know, that's yeah. the that's the transition phase. But I guess that's that's. The, the point about Marx saying the commune must defend itself, that necessitates pretty large state. Um, that's why the Articles yeah. of Confederation didn't do too, too well. That's why, you know, like the founders want to switch the Constitution, raise higher taxes, build a bigger army, that, you know, all that good stuff. And so th I guess this is where the incentives that he's not, the incentives aren't really aligned here. Enough yeah. I guess my ultimate question is I want to segue into is the idea of class, con class consciousness. <laughs> um, so he uses that word a lot. Um, and I think this, there's fundamentally a weird, op, like his, his observation of the world about how incentives work and how they really do work. I feel like there's a really good mismatch there. Um, so what do you, what does he say about class consciousness and what do you think is, what would be your sort of critique knowing what we know today? Yeah, well, uh, you know, Marxian class consciousness is basically identification with, uh, with your social group. Mm -hmm. And he is aware that there are problems here in the way that class consciousness manifests itself. Uh, because, you know, his mechanism driving history, material possessions allocated between the haves and have-nots. Mm -hmm. The struggle between the haves and have-nots uh, is a numerical struggle in his mind because there are a lot more have-nots than there are haves. Uh, the uh, proletariat's outnumber the owner's capital. Mm -hmm. uh, so he says in his mind, this should be all you have to do is rise up and seize the means of production and you're off to the revolution. Mm -hmm. um, yet it doesn't happen. And this is something Marxists and uh, Marx himself and his successors really struggle with. You get the first hints of it in the manifesto itself. Uh, you know, he's writing in the late 1840s. It's the earliest articulation of kind of a, a system. Uh, and, and what he what he happens to say is, well, you know, the, the 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 working classes have an interest to rise up. They have an interest to assert themselves, but they aren't. Therefore, it's up to the Communist Party. Mm. Uh, the communist intellectuals to lead them, to show them the way. Mm -hmm. 
this is where the uh, kind of the Leninist vanguard theory gets its, its root, although it's not as mm-hmm. developed at this point. But he says conveniently, well, the communists themselves, and, and, and i.e., me and Engels, is what he's saying to his readers, mm-hmm. uh, Carl and Frederick, we're, we're the uh, we're the intellectuals who have figured it out, and we will be the impetus that shows you the way. First, by pamphleteering, that's the, the way that they get into this. Uh, later, there's a, you know, an expectation that this is going to be the revolutionary mechanism that ignites the consciousness of the class. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also say that there are uh, obstacles to overcome, that the other side is constantly throwing up uh, distractions, distortions uh, to keep people uh, focused on other things besides their class interest. Mm-hmm. And that's really why this historical process doesn't manifest. Remember, Marx has predicted he knows where society is going. He mm-hmm. thinks that this end state is inevitable. It's just a matter of getting there. Uh, it's a matter of certain triggers happening before uh, we take that step of the stage progression of history to end at this communist utopia. Mm-hmm. So when you don't get there, it must be something that's impeding the class uh, consciousness of the proletariat from manifesting itself. Mm. So that's the problem. Now the critique that comes about, and this comes uh, uh, this is a, an economist by the name of Mansur Olson in the uh, public choice tradition. He writes this great little book in 1965 called The Logic of Collective Action. And there's a, uh, an, an understudied chapter in there where he addresses Marxism. And he's asking the question about class consciousness, class identity groups uh, asserting themselves uh, politically, because mm-hmm. the uh, the question of collective action, he's asking, why do interest groups emerge and which interest groups have advantages in politics? It's an age old mm-hmm. uh, thing. It's rooted in the Federalist Papers. It's rooted in uh, the ancient Greeks are aware of this. Mm-hmm. Why are some interest groups successful and others are not? And Olson, it's basically a uh, mathematical dimensions of how groups manifest. And what Olson says is groups that are cohesive in their interest. Uh, that have uh, some heavy stakeholders within in them that are able to offer certain selective incentives to control the free rider impetus. He says the big problem of, of collective action is the free rider. Mm. It's uh, you can say I'm a member of this group, but then I'm not going to lift any finger mm-hmm. uh, to to help this group advance whatever its collective goal happens to be. That's going to be a failed group. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if I'm a member of this group and I have such a stake in getting the outcome of it, and this is why concentrated industry lobbies are really successful, uh, they have large stakeholders and a cohesive, well-defined mission, they're going to have advantages at organizing collectively. So Olson's going to take this, and he says it works as a model for interest group politics. He says, well, what if we apply it to the Marxist system? Mm-hmm. And what it, what it essentially comes down to is the proletarian class consciousness, class identity, is thoroughly undermined by the diffusion of the group mm. by free riders. Mm. Uh, so he basically says, I can mathematically show that Marx erred. Mm. And also from a defining a class standpoint, uh, perhaps in the 19th century when just about everybody, you know, either worked in the factory or owned the factory, then perhaps you can maybe get some class consciousness going around. But today, if you, for example, if you wanted to draw like working class at like a set income level, you know, like, the person like plowing fields in Idaho does, probably doesn't have too much in common, uh, you know, with the research assistant at the university, right? They're probably both paid about the same. Just you know, sure. so the university don't pay their research assistants that much. I'm not going to you know, comment on that too much, but you know, like there's just too much diversity in interest, too much diversity in lifestyle, too much diversity in viewpoints. Um, not just in like countries as big as the United States, but just like in a, in a society that's quite when a market-driven society is actually pretty dynamic and right. uh, it's really hard to actually construct a coherent class. Um, we also see this a lot with, uh, I guess, uh, um, like race politics today in the United States. Like, okay, like what does it mean to be like Latin, uh, Asian or Latin or Latin, Latinx, I guess is the term <laughs> now, right? Um, we're seeing like, it used to be the Obama coalition, you know, if you're minority vote Democrat. And now like during a 2020 election, the only group that voted more Democrat were white men and all the minorities voted for Republican more like an increase yeah. in voting Republicans. So it's just like these interest groups are not easily defined um, and condensed down to just a simple, you know, class essentially. I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, Marx oversimplifies. Uh, now he says that class analysis should dominate all other considerations. And this is why when he gets into some things like religion, he's very dismissive. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sees religion as, as, as a distortion that's keeping your attention focused on something else. 
whereas class he sees as as more of a uh, a, a fixed characteristic of humanity. So that becomes his unit of analysis. Mm-hmm. When you get into all these schismatic offshoots of Marxism today. Uh, you have people that are stepping in and asking the question, well, why didn't the class revolution materialize and manifest the way Marx predicted? Uh, then they, they said, well, well, maybe his unit of analysis was wrong. Maybe race is the real unit of analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is where you get uh, some of the critical theory tradition, which is a, it's like a, a, a an offshoot of Marx. It's like a, mm-hmm. a, a son or a grandson of the Marxist system. It uses the same mechanisms of analysis, but it supplants class with race. And there are other ways to do it with gender, with religion, all mm-hmm. sorts of other identities. Uh, but the assertion here is that that's the mechanism of, uh, of conflict, that's the mechanism of identity, and that's supposed to explain what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also means that the old school classical Marxists that adhere rigidly to a class distinction uh, as a basis of conflict absolutely hate the critical theory Marxists mm-hmm. who are using <laughs> race or something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's the uh, 99% agreement on one thing and 1% they uh, they disagree and therefore uh, they shoot each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, like Trotsky and Stalin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I've noticed that a lot too because a lot of the classical Marxists that I see are, you know, like they, I guess they tangentially support the, the critical race push because it's, you know, I guess they're in the same camp. It's like, okay, yeah. like, I mean, it sounds good to me. I hate the US too. You know, I hate the, I hate capitalism. That's all fine and dandy. Uh, but I just noticed that they're, they're they're noticeably less enthusiastic about the whole critical race push because uh, they're more concerned about, you know, the class, class push, push yeah, the, the income pushes. They, which... they, and they actually see some of the, the racial politics as distorting people mm-hmm. away from their class identity. Mm-hmm. It's saying you should identify as African-American, not as a member of the laboring class. You should identify as mm-hmm. uh, Latinx, not a member of the, yeah, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I mean, I guess one of the biggest blasphemies for, I guess, a critical race theorist, but uh, completely fine if you are a classical Marxist is to say that, you know, a, a black person make at the bottom end of the wage scale is in the same group and has so much in common with a white person. Like, you know, that would just, you know, from a Marxist standpoint, that sounds good to me. From a critical race standpoint, that's just like, you can't say that, right? That's just. That's yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to the works of Marx himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, read Marx's writings on race. They are not pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, he is writing a theory of class, but it's a theory of class that's basically premised around white Europeans. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he does stray into commentary on other races, he does see them as laboring classes, uh, at least the proletarian segments of other races. Uh, but he, he very clearly sees them as intellectually subordinate to uh, his own racial classification. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a rather notorious passage where Marx and Engels write an essay on the, uh, the Mexican-American War. Uh, which plays out in 1846 in the United States. It results in large segments of the Southwest transferring from Mexico to, to the United States. And Marx's commentary on this is, well, uh, basically the white Yankees can put it to better use than the lazy Mexicans. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's probably, you're not going to hear that in, that in class, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, and then there's several commentaries like that. Uh, Marx gets into almost a proto-eugenicist uh, theory, mm. Uh, again, when he's conflicting with a socialist competitor in his own day, Ferdinand LaSalle, mm-hmm. who's uh, more kind of like a, a democratic socialist, wants to use uh, uh, means of uh, the Prussian legislature, parliaments, to mm-hmm. uh, uh, to bring about reforms in a socialist direction. So they want some of the same ends in politics. Uh, they originally were allies of each other. But LaSalle is uh, uh, basically rejecting a large segment of the Marxian version of revolutionary socialism. Mm-hmm. Well, Marx's interpretation of that was, uh, well, he basically attacks LaSalle's race. Mm. Uh, he calls LaSalle a, a not-so-nice name for uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. someone of African descent. Yeah. Uh, uh, begins with an N, <laughs> which was very liberally used in Marx's writing. Mm. And he says that this is a result of his genetics that he cannot see uh, mm. what you and I, uh, Marx and Engels is basically what he's, he's writing to Engels to say, uh, mm. LaSalle cannot see, uh, what we see because he's genetically inferior. Mm. I mean, that almost sounds exactly like the common criticisms. Like you can't make that observation because you're a white person or something, you know, uh, a little stroke of irony, of course, maybe a contradiction as some would say. Uh, but I feel like, I guess on a serious note, cause I don't want to make this all about, you know, bashing Marx and sure, his personal, sure. um, do you think he was saying that because at the time 
he was noticing that race and culture did play play a role in how people view the world, how people want to organize. I guess, but then he just went, you know, a hundred miles to the right and yeah. and it's like, okay, and therefore, you know, it's just, they're just genetically inferior. Don't understand the way Marxism properly works. He was like, he was, he was seeing how, you know, race and culture does play a role in the way people view the world. But um, instead of just acknowledging that he won't, he basically wanted to punt that aside by just saying, oh, it's because, you know, they're black and therefore they can't yeah. understand. I think it again gets back to like a, an uglier offshoot of this proto-vanguard theory. Hmm. Uh, the communists are supposed to lead the way of the classes that cannot organize themselves but need cues given to them by the uh, the intellectual elite, i.e. me in Marxist sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's looking at that and he's viewing who are who he thinks his receptive audiences are and uh, it comes down to the European laboring class. Mm-hmm. Uh, same way he views the Civil War in the United States, he he definitely is anti-slavery, mm-hmm. uh, so he doesn't view uh, African American slaves as uh, as like property. He's, he's very much rejects the institution of slavery, and he knows that they're wrong. He knows they're being exploited. Um, clear as day that this is a uh, uh, an error. Uh, you don't need Marxism to know that slavery is, lo- is wrong, basically. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he he does kind of interpret it as, as something of a feudal throwback, mm-hmm. uh, which is how the Southerners also interpreted it. They said, well, that's a positive good. We're enacting feudalism. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas Marx is going to say, well, this is uh, this is exploitative. And he's correct on that, but he does not see African-Americans themselves as being the mechanism of the revolutionary change. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he keeps trying to do is shoehorn the Union Army into a uh, uh, basically a, a white labor movement. Mm. And this is where you get some of his attempts to curry favor with the politicians of the day. So Marx writes this obsequious, uh, brown-nosing letter to Abraham Lincoln mm. after Lincoln's reelected, and he's basically saying, "You're you're a son of the working class <laughs> to show us." Meanwhile, he's he's like cursing him and his, his private letters to mm-hmm. Engels and saying, "Yeah, this this guy that's running the U.S. he's an idiot." Mm-hmm. Is is basically the gist of the private letters, but the, the obsequious public letter, uh, although it's put out under another person's name, so that there's no awareness that Marx is actually the author of this when it's published. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Lincoln's assassinated and Marx turns around and does the exact same thing to Andrew Johnson. Mm-hmm. He says, in his private letter, he says, well, well, Lincoln, uh, yeah, I guess we kind of called him a, a, a laboring <laughs> class, but he was really kind of like a, a lawyer for the corporate railroad interest. Mm-hmm. He was he was of the upper class. Mm-hmm. But Andrew Johnson, who was uh, trained as a tailor, uh, he's a true man of the working mm-hmm. class, and he'll be the one that leads uh, um, mm-hmm his class basically to uh, uh, a better state of consciousness. And so it's, it's a lot of self-rationalization mm. of unfolding events around him to fit into the paradigm that he's already decided is the historical progress of society. Mm. I guess really briefly to summarize that super briefly, this idea of class consciousness, and I guess um, by offshoot, like racial consciousness, like people, when people to say like, Oh, like, you know, as an Asian, you should feel this and that this way or that way, you know? And I guess the same response I would have to that. And I'm sure the same response Johnson or Link would have to Marx in terms of like, you are, you know, the representatives, whatever class it's like, I do not care about like yeah. <laughs> what my class is. I care about like myself, my family, my friends. And uh, this is kind of like public choice theory versus a more Marxian views. Like I, public choice was like, I care about me people I personally care about, people I have connections to, right? And then the Marxists would try to just draw that out into like a more abstract version of like, okay, no, it's like the entire class as a whole, the the race as a whole, what, mm-hmm. what have you, right? So it's, I guess like the public choice would see it through more like a realistic lens. Like, of course, their interest groups, those interest groups are more narrowly defined. Marxists would try to just make that super abstract. Um, I guess I wanted to move into the, the final part of a um, conversation, which is kind of like, where do you see this going um i guess like super briefly i've also wanted to point out on kind of like the whole infighting thing is that the mark well, i wish we could have talked about this before running out of time but like the, you know like marxist countries and how they played out yeah. um because the chinese you know they're one huge marxist country and the soviets were another one the vietnamese yeah. and they all fought each other <laughs> um so that's that's like another conversation for another day but i think that's worth pointing out the chinese had a war with the vietnamese and they also had a war with the Soviets that brought a quicker end to the Cold War on behalf of the United States. So, like, this is all, I mean, the whole idea that they're, everyone's just all going to, you know, hold hands hunky-dory and yep. say we're all the working class of the world. It's, you know, there's there's way more stuff going on than that. Um, 
So we see academia, right? You know, I don't know what the statistics are. You've looked into this more than I have, but I'm sure that like, I mean, this is basically the meme these days, like academia is far left, it's hijacked by Marxists. Uh, but you also have, you know, big government movements on the right with national yeah. conservatism. Uh, Scandinavia used to be more socialist and they rolled it back a little bit. Um, you've had market reforms in countries like China, India, Vietnam, right? So I feel like in practice, you know, Marxism is going out of style and then the right is coming up with its own, you know, big government collectivist style. Absolutely. But then academia, on the other hand, is pushing further to the left, right? So given those two contradictions, like, where does this all, where does this go? I think the, the practical reality is, uh, and you see this both on left-wing and right-wing collectivism, is a lot of it is simply a rationalized veneer for uh, appropriation through political means. Mm -hmm. It's a rationalized veneer for uh, uh, basically the worst actors of society to put themselves in as mm -hmm. the rulers of society. Mm. Uh, and Hayek has a, a classic chapter on this, why the worst get on top and throw to serfdom. And he, he's basically saying, uh, he observes the same thing. Stalin and Hitler come about through the same processes and incentive structures of politics. Uh, they, they are unscrupulous actors that are willing to uh, uh, use means that other people of greater principle uh, would, would draw the line at to get themselves into power. Mm. And then when they, when they arrive at the top, what do they do? They, they kill all their enemies and uh, uh, establish a military dictatorship. Mm. Uh, this is an earlier critique that some of Marx's contemporaries, uh, Mikhail Bakunin in particular, uh, causes basically a rift in the first international uh, working men's association with Marx because he, he basically says, uh, you know, Carl, if you act in the way that your, your system is advocating, you're just going to breed a perpetuation of another form of dictatorship. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the practical reality of execution creates many, many openings to abuse that we see in the, in the world around us. Now, the academic side of that, and this is where we hear uh, kind of the meme playing out, uh, well, that wasn't true socialism. Mm. And they said that about the Soviet Union. They said that about Castro's Cuba, uh, Mao's China. Uh, you run down the list. Every society in history where a communist dictatorship has been established under the name of Marxist ideology, under the name of a Marxist system, uh, there's a fascinating pattern, and that is as soon as the dictatorship's established, as soon as the Marxist state is declared or, or seizes power, usually in a coup d'etat, mm -hmm. um, all the socialist intellectuals rally behind it and say, see, we've done it right this time. Most recent example, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, uh, 10 to 15 years ago, all the left-wing socialist intellectuals were rallying behind him as this wonderful new thing. Mm -hmm. Did the same thing with Nicolas Maduro, his successor. Uh, as we've finally gotten socialism right. But when it goes sour and when the veneer is stripped off and you start seeing human rights abuses, you start seeing the ugliness behind the scenes of how these systems are actually operating in practice, then they switch their tune. It's, well, that's not true socialism. Mm. Uh, they did it with the Soviet Union. There was an influx of intellectuals that rallied behind Lenin and Stalin in the first decade or so after they seized power. By the 1950s, when it turns out that these people are genocidal maniacs and that's known before the world, uh, they revise their own history. They pretend that, they, that that's not true socialism, and they turn around and look for something else. And, ah, Castro. Hmm. There's the new true socialist. <laughs> and it's a recurring pattern every single time it's attempted. What it, and what it comes down to is I think the academy itself is engaged in utopian fantasizing. Uh, they've accepted the idea as true and unchallengeable as a, an axiom, almost a religious axiom. And when they see it implemented in practice, when it fails to deliver on all the promises that Marx and subsequent Marxists made, uh, it can't be an error in the system in their minds. It must be an error in the execution that somebody else along the way did something the wrong way mm. and subverted the true revolution from occurring. Mm. So I guess the one, the one thing we can really glean from Marx's works, just looking at the, how the world's playing out and how the world played out after he, he would, um, he finished writing, which, which would be essentially people will use, will always try to use force or government force uh, to essentially go after 
but will always be scarce resources in, in this world. And so there will always be people that want something, people who have something, and then there will always be some sort of medium that they wish to use, usually force to try to try to, there will always be that kind of like that clash back and forth and trying to try to basically jockey for scarce resources. Yeah. Well, and political allocation of resources is probably the most susceptible means of uh, abuse, of graft, of, uh, of favoritism. Uh, because if you take a market mechanism out of the exchange equation, uh, you know, markets are, are actually fascinating in the sense because uh, there's close to a, a neutrally fair exchange as one could possibly get in this world. Uh, consumer preferences are sovereign in a true, fair, open market exchange. And the exchange itself is mutually beneficial. You remove that over to the political system. Now you have a decision maker uh, who's making the shots, calling the shots on who gets what, and therefore, by definition, who does not get something, mm -hmm. uh, who we can take from and who we can give to. And you put that in the hands of a political actor. Political actors are uh, susceptible to manipulation, and they're not uh, true neutral parties. They're also people that are trying to often advance their own status in society by being the uh, political allocator. Uh, if I can give favors to someone, that maybe maybe that person will donate to my campaign. Mm. Is the classic version, or in the Marxist the Marxist. Soviet-style system, if I can give favors to someone in the party, I can rise and rank in the party. Mm. And if I get to the top, then I can choose uh, who are my subordinates, and I can control them by giving them access to things as rewards and taking other things away from them if, uh, if they fall out of my favor. Mm. Well, Bill Magnus, he's the editor of The Best of Karl Marx. It's currently on sale on Amazon as well as AIER's website. Pick up a copy today. Uh, Phil, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. If you really like what you heard today, make sure to check out AIER's website at AIER.org, as well as all our various social media channels on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, as well as check out all our various uh, uh, podcasts on Spotify. If you really like what you heard today and you want to support more cutting-edge research and writing like this, make sure to become a donor. All the information and more can be found at AIER.org. Thank you. Mm -hmm.